Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini-episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is Dr. Ida Santana, an addiction medicine physician and a writer. She's on Substack as at Ida Santana, where she publishes Osage Orange, Dispatches from the Prairie Land. Dr. Ida Santana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here, Danny. I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, if, if for no other reason, then uh, I, I got the chance to say Osage out loud instead of just seeing it written and guessing how you might say it in my mind. Oh, well, I grew up cutting firewood and bodoc trees have thorns and it's one of the least favorite. If you're bush hogging, they will come get you. So, but they were used to make bows back in France Hmm. long ago. Anyway. And and the Osage orange is a, a real fruit, yes? It's like a walnut type of a, it's a hole over a nut. Like it's the fruit or, you know, the seeding process from the tree. And mm-hmm. um, my substack is not graphically designed correctly. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> they're green, not orange. It's not an actual orange. It just has the shape of an orange. So once I get somebody to help me with that, it'll be the right color. It'll be all over for everybody. Yes. I, I also really appreciate this because I was just briefly reading about like the history of these hedges and how they were often used as like a barrier hedge, mm-hmm. um, and, and that uh, it was sometimes referred to as horse high, bull strong, and pig tight. Ooh, lovely. Which I think is one of the most amazing descriptions of a plant I've ever read in my life. And I hope to live my life in such a way that somebody could say this about me at my funeral. Oh, there'll be so many things, so many things to say. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. Um I am looking forward to kind of uh, talking through some of these questions together. Not all of them have to do specifically with addiction, but I do think that a lot of them sort of touch on issues that feel very relevant, including like setting boundaries, saying no to someone you don't really want to say no to, welfare checks, et cetera. So uh, I think it's all very much like in your wheelhouse. Yes. Beautiful. Well, then I will read our first letter and we will start thinking about how to be helpful. The subject here is come too far to walk away now. A friend of mine, Kate, is struggling so often and so seriously that I'm questioning my ability to help. Back in college, I supported Kate through some difficult moments, which I chalked up to the stress of our rigorous program. Sometimes I would just sit with her while she cried without even knowing what was going on. I wanted to be supportive, especially after she opened up to me about being molested as a child. Since graduation, she's struggled in every job she's ever held in our field. Sometimes she would call and text multiple times a day, 
to vent and ask advice before ultimately leaving that job and starting the next. At this point, I was getting tired of the pattern and took a step back from our relationship since I was feeling overwhelmed and like we had less and less in common aside from work as time went on. In 2020, things took a turn when Kate was horrifically sexually assaulted and after confiding to her manager, unceremoniously pushed out until she quit. Since then, she has started and been fired from two jobs, seriously interrupting her ability to access consistent therapy. Myself and another friend have been her primary support system as her family is unsupportive. During her PTSD and anxiety flare-ups, I spend hours on the phone listening to her and convincing her to get out of bed and drink water or take a shower. When I'm at my limit, I get messages from her apologizing for being a terrible friend. I've previously lost a friend to suicide and am terrified that that will happen again if I step away. This relationship has been taxing my mental health. I've previously seen a therapist about this and interrupting important life events for a decade and I don't see an end in sight. I feel more like a 24-7 on-call therapist than a friend. I know I need distance from this relationship, but how do I step away when she seems so fragile? You know, I feel for this letter writer a great deal. And I think it also kind of exemplifies a, a type of letter that I get often, which is sort of like somebody who, who's sort of reached a breaking point in a friendship or a relationship. And they mm -hmm. feel like uh, my problem is my friend is too fragile for me to be able to set any limits when the problem is, in fact, you need to develop a way to set limits with someone who is fragile or going through a difficult time because that's that's the time you right like you don't need to set this kind of limit with a friend who has like all of their sort of emotional stuff in order or great right. external support systems it's it's never that friend you have to set the limits with it's always the person who you think can't handle them and the question of how do you do that in a way that is not just pushing someone away telling them yes you're right you're a terrible friend i can't give you any more like love or affection or support and, and trying to find something in between 24/7 on call availability or for my own mental health, I have to abandon you. Um, what's what's the middle ground there? So I'm just kind of curious what you think of as either what's most useful for the letter writer to do now, or if you wanted to sort of step back and think about it more broadly, what you might have advised this letter writer to do a few years ago if you'd had the option. So kind of in terms of where she is now, I, I was just listening to this thing on three parts of empathy. And the classic one is the emotional empathy that we think about having the bandwidth for somebody and identifying their feelings and non-judgment, all those things. The second one is cognitive empathy, where someone can understand the logic and reason and kind of processes behind it, but is less emotionally invested in it. And then the third part they're describing is more of a compassion state, which is kind of actionable steps of, in Buddhism, it's a quivering of the heart. So it's moving towards someone who's suffering. And what I hear in this letter is that this letter writer is burned out. Like that they are kind of at their wits end of, they cannot keep doing what they've been doing. And that's, you give people permission all the time of, mm -hmm. is that valid? Yes, that's valid. Absolutely. If this is affecting you and your ability to kind of function in your life, then you need to step back. And I think that there's this kind of counter point weight of if I do, and then Kate unravels and God forbid ends up suicidal, is in some sort of mental health crisis, and I abandon her, I'm the bad friend, it's my fault, kind of onloading all this guilt. And so my sense of it is in kind of Buddhism, there's this concept of you're not responsible for somebody else's feelings. Hmm. So their feelings are on them. So Kate's having 
a really appropriate emotional response to everything she's been through. Childhood molestation, this horrific sexual assault in 2020, being fired from a job for coming out for it, you know, a little reminiscent of Sinead. Like that speaking out gets you in trouble. And so Kate is, Kate has got to do Kate of like whatever she can do, however she can access support, resources, help. That's her side of the street. And then the letter writer has to kind of take care of their part in it. And so what they're saying is, I can't take this. And so Tracy McMillan, who has the family or fiance show and own and relationships guru type, she has a story where when a friendship is imbalanced, it doesn't mean it has to end. It just means you step back. And so the letter writer knows that's the next step for them. How do they kind of set some limits of, here's what I can and can't do. Here's how I can be with you and be intact emotionally. And Dan Siegel has a concept of your window of tolerance, which is an emotional range within which you can kind of accommodate emotions and feelings and stressors and you can function. And what what's being described is an Eckhart Tolle language, it's the pain body. So Kate is just in this state of kind of turmoil and distress. And then the letter writer as her friend is kind of bearing the weight of this, of like being her 24-7 therapist is not tenable. And so she's saying, I need out. And that's completely, completely valid. And it doesn't mean that she cuts her off, never speaks to her again, is, you know, drops her. It's none of that. But it's how much space do I need? What boundaries do I need so that I'm safe? And so that's her work is to figure out what can I do that feels that I'm not being completely drained. Um, I sing, I've been singing today to my patients. Hmm. There's a hole in my bucket, dear Eliza, dear Eliza. And just this concept of like when our bucket is drained, you cannot give from an empty cup. And so the work of healing, no matter what it is, is you fill yourself up. Like in the 23rd Psalm, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life that you're receiving some sort of grace. And so what the letter writer is saying is, I'm drained, I'm burned out. It's causing me this stress, like one of the burnout symptoms, dissociative, like where you, you care, you care, you care, and then you don't care anymore. Then you, you're, you're, you're done. And then you're either out of your window of tolerance where you're reactive and explosive and kind of angry, and, or you're, you're below where you're shut down and repressed, and that's just as dangerous. And destructive. Um, but either way, you're not able to process what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, all of that strikes me as really true. And I, I think the good news that I feel like we can offer this letter writer is there's a lot of room for you to do things because so far you haven't really tried anything. The letter writer says, at this point, I was getting tired of this pattern and I took a step back from our relationship. My read of that is I didn't say anything to Kate. I didn't articulate any of this. I just took her calls less often. Is that your read of that section as well? Yes. So yes. the two things the letter writer has tried is one, drop everything and pick up the phone every time Kate calls. And two, one time they were a little more avoidant. Um, mm-hmm. and, and none of that's to say, wow, you, you've really fucked this up. You, you've done horribly. I just mean you haven't yet tried a lot. Um, And so, again, I think the letter writer feels like I have to wait until Kate is okay enough that I can just sort of bow out and gracefully exit. 
And I worry that that will never happen. So how do I make Kate well enough that I can then like Irish exit our friendship? And I, I think my sense here is, again, just your problem is not Kate's too fragile. The problem is you have not yet learned how to set limits with other people's fragility. And you feel like the only way that you can do that is to vanish. And I think especially after what sounds like almost a, a, a decade-long friendship that has involved a lot of emotional support, I think one of the worst things that this letter writer could do would just be to like quietly take a step back, not say anything, become harder and harder to reach, and leave Kate wondering what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so that's the one thing that I would really encourage this letter writer not to do. Um, and so thinking about then what can you do? You know, one of those is is ask yourself, how often do I want to talk to Kate right now and offer some support? Is it I want to like have a monthly phone call where we check in? Is it less than that? Is it something else? And offer that, like make it clear. Um, I, I would really encourage you to say a, an edited version of what you have said here. I would not like go into this has all been really, really hard for me. But I think to say, I love you so much. I want to support you. I also know that I can't be as on present or on call as I've been in the past. Um, and if that, you know, I, I imagine some of the worry there is that then Kate might say, oh my God, I knew it. I've been a terrible friend. I'm, I'm bad for you. Um, that way you can really stress, I'm letting you know this because I love you and I want you to know what I can be available and present for. It is true. I can't do everything that I've done in the past. But to to not engage or to like not agree to the terms of this makes you bad, like I need to do something different does not mean you are wrong or evil. Um, and, and that can be challenging, too, because if somebody else says, oh, I must be terrible, it is difficult not to rush forward with, no, you're great. Let me reassure you and soothe you. But I think it will be really important for you to, I think, sometimes match her intensity with calmness which is, again, not the same thing as being like really like neutral and, and cold when she's self-loathing or anxious, but you don't have to get into that dance with her every time she tries to do it. And so I think to say like, I'm not going to be able to pick up all the time. That doesn't mean I don't love you or care about you. I want you to be able to reach out and find other forms of support, but to really let her do that um, and to not like, here's a list of five other people you can call instead of me to really trust she will have to find that without you. And that there is support, both professional and non-professional. There are support groups. There are other people she can talk to um, that are not you. If you got hit by a bus tomorrow, she would have other options in life. Um, And so I think stepping down from like thinking it's just me standing between Kate and death, and then also being clear with her enough that she knows when you guys will talk next so that you're not vanishing from her life. But you're also setting the terms. So you know, hey, next Friday, I'm going to prepare myself for a longer conversation rather than whenever Kate feels like it is when we're going to do it next. Does that strike you as reasonable? Is there anything there that you would want to add to that or, or, or encourage a letter writer not to do? That sounds great. I agree with all of that. And it, it sounds like there's this kind of all or none thinking that can go with codependency where there's a triangle of a victim, villain, savior, and they're kind of going in this loop and nobody's really happy here. Like it's not a, you know, I imagine Kate is not in a great shape either. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, there's, and just honoring that this letter writer lost their friend to suicide. It's one of the most highly shaming things that happens. And there's just a residue of guilt and blame and if only and rewriting that. And so she's going into it with a different sort of sensitivity to it of the stakes are high. And yet 
the kind of Al-Anon approach of you can't fix anyone. Mm-hmm. Like that whether Kate is able to get the help she needs and get better and heal is that's Kate's business. It's not the letter writer's business. And she can bear witness and kind of sit with her in the darkness with no reference to wounded or healed, have all the compassion she wants, but she's not going to be able to make this friend better. Like that's not her sort of role or job description. Yeah. And I just think really the thing that I would encourage this letter writer to offer Kate as much as possible is honesty, which is not the same thing as here's every time I've ever resented your calls or here's every time you've interrupted my life. I don't mean offering her a laundry list of criticisms, but I I think that in cases like this, sometimes compassion and empathy move people in the direction of silence and avoidance when that is more damaging than otherwise. And so I would just encourage the letter writer, if there are moments when you feel like the polite thing to do is just screen a call and not talk about it, I think it would actually probably be better for Kate if you were just specific of like, I'd love to call you on Friday, but between now and then I got other stuff going on, like so that she knew. I I think just that knowing like I care about you enough to tell you what I'm capable of or or what I'm willing to do or what I need from you rather Mm -hmm. than. Um, by my absence and by my silence, you have to guess what you've done wrong or why things have suddenly changed between us. And I think that's hard on people. So I would also to that end encourage you whenever you do have that next call and, and to really just do this for yourself. You, you don't need to wait for her to offer it and and she doesn't even need to do a great job of participating, but just to say like, I want five minutes of this phone call to just be me letting you know stuff that's going on in my life. You don't have to say much. Um, but it's just important to me that we have a little more reciprocity. Um, and again, like I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty or awful or you've been doing something hideously wrong. It's just like, I want you to know last month I saw a movie I really liked. So I'm going to tell you about that. I think rather than waiting for her to ask, to just let her know that's important to you and to initiate that will also make you feel a little bit better, even if it is sort of perfunctory. And it's just like, well, here's three minutes of some movies I've seen lately and like a cute dog I saw yesterday. Now you know a little bit more about me. Yeah. It's hard to disappoint people. I think we're wired to please. And there's this kind of unspoken contract and friendships that, you know, when you're in grade school BFF, that this is going to last, that this is, this person's going to be there. And what this letter writer's saying is they've kind of grown apart. Like there's, there's a part of the letter writer that is, is not feeling like they're getting what they need from this relationship. And I don't remember which guest you had, but she was talking about how female friendships have an expiration date of seven or eight years. And I don't remember that at all. Um, (laughs) I love the idea of like, women can only be friends for seven years. It sounds like something out of a fairy tale. Well, it's an average. Like if Uh you look at friends that you've had, some last much longer, shorter, but there's a sort of a a timeline in which you've gone through changes. You're not the person you were back in college. Like what your interest and what you want from the relationship is going to change. And so this idea that there's a static, you know, we're friends and that's the way it is and that it's written in stone, people change. It's like, to me, it reminds me a lot of a marriage where there's there's this contract and you're saying till death do us part in some form. And then there's this part where you're really unhappy and it isn't working for anyone. And that you have an out. Like that when you go to marriage counseling and they say divorce has to be on the table. Like that's that's an option. You save yourself. And so 
you know, I, I'm not saying that she needs to cut Kate off or end their friendship, but I think that, sh- that that has to be an option at some point. If she's really in a state where it's like her mental health is suffering, she's now not functioning. Like she has to sort of, you know, you do you. Like that it's, it's her responsibility to take care of herself, which, you know, doesn't mean that she's done with Kate and won't ever speak to her again, but that prioritizing her needs is, you know, boundaries of those secret keys to compassion. That if she's saying, this is how much I can take, and then I'm going to be genuinely present for you. Yeah, and I think just sort of my last thought here is, uh, you know, again, none of this is to like Monday morning quarterback this entire friendship, but I, I think letter writer something just to pay attention to is, uh, back in college, I supported Kate through some difficult moments, which I chalked up to the stress of our rigorous program, which again is not to say like, wow, you did a bad thing by being supportive to someone who is going through a lot. But I, I would also hope that you can think about this and take this experience into your other friendships. And if you notice in other friendships, a pattern of somebody leans on you a lot and you don't say anything about this imbalance or sometimes needing to not do that or sometimes wanting to have other conversations because you sort of assume, well, this is situational or this is just specific to a particular time of life. I would encourage you to stop doing that. Um, Again, none of this is to say you brought this on yourself. You've done something really wrong. You're just, you're learning how to correct from going too far in another direction and just encourage you. I, I think setting limits that are also like kind and polite and appropriate that aren't just like, hey, fuck you. Stop telling me about your troubles. Um, uh, earlier on in relationships will will get you in a better place where more of your friendships feel a little bit balanced and you're comfortable speaking up sooner rather than, oh my gosh, I'm at a nine or a 10 on the scale of one to 10 and I'm about to collapse. Um, and, and I think you will find that if you do that sooner, you you will actually find your friendships become in, in, in many ways, I think, closer and stronger because your friends know more about, ah, like not I'm awful, I must stop talking about myself, but like, my friend needs me to wrap this up and we need to talk about something else and, and that will do you good too. Agree. Yeah. So good luck setting limits with people you care about, especially when they're in crisis is hard, but it needs to be done. And, you know, the people you need to learn to say no to are never the people who are the, you know, they're, they're, they're the people who need a lot. Like if, if she didn't need a lot, you wouldn't need to be doing this. So it's a lesson you're going to have to learn because I think it's probably going to come up more than once in life. Um, but it is absolutely possible to do less for someone else's emotional crises that's not either disappearing from their lives forever or saying, you're bad, I'm giving up on you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. I think that's all I've got there. And so um, if you're feeling up for it, we can uh, move into our question, which I will tell you, I already got some like backup advice by talking to my wife who works as a professor at a college. Um, And so I figured would have more uh, useful advice than my sort of general feelings 
So I've come a little bit pre-prepared. The subject is no clue what to do. I'm an educator at a small community college. One of my job duties is to assist English classes by being an in-class tutor. I attend every class session and assist students with in-class work. One of the students in this class is writing a research paper on trans women in sports. Yes, it's bad. She's arguing that trans women should be segregated from cis women and compete in a trans women-only category. The student is an 18-year-old cis girl who said that she got interested in the subject after watching YouTube videos. Every time this student and the professor talk about her paper during class, my stomach turns to knots and I leave the room. I feel a responsibility to call out her transphobia, but I'm not sure how to do it. For one thing, it's not my classroom. The professor has greenlit this paper and my job is to support the professor's curriculum. Secondly, I'm a non-binary queer person and I'm in the closet at work. I've run into casual transphobia and homophobia at this school before. Sometimes I can successfully shut it down without outing myself, but other times I freeze up and do nothing. It's easier for me to speak up when I'm in smaller groups or one-on-one with someone. I don't know of anyone on the staff or faculty side who is out. I've met one student in my three years here who is out as a cis gay man. What is the best course of action in a workplace climate like this? I feel that I need to say something, but do I also need to out myself? The last question is the easiest one, which is just no. You never need to out yourself in order to to talk about like transphobia, homophobia, or anything else. So that's just a straight across the board. No, good news. You know, I know your wife is one of the bravest people I've ever borne witness to. And academia just seems like a dumpster fire right now in so many ways. And, you know, in my home state of Tennessee, they're passing laws that if you teach that slavery is bad, you can be fired from state universities. And, and I, it's such a strange climate out there. I was looking into the Texas A&M situation where they hired a Black woman for their journalism school, and then the white president had to resign because the racist backlash was so severe. Mm. Um, and, you know, to me, it has a lot to do with where you are. Like, if you're in one of the 29 states where you can be fired for being gay, you're you're at risk. You're just at risk. There's, you know, and even if you're not, you're at risk. So I don't know what kind of support you would have within the institution from colleagues or what blowback you would get for it. And, and I wrote down the Audre Lorde quote, when I dare to be powerful and use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I'm afraid. And um, clearly this letter writer is somebody who's got a heart full of courage. Mm-hmm. Um, they are living their truth and hats off to them for that. And you know, I, I hear this in some of the other letters when someone's queer and they're they're kind of burdened with the responsibility of uh, representing this progressive and you know, standing up for LGBT rights. And sometimes that just seems untenable. You know, I, I grew up in Tennessee where when I was first in college, uh, I'm dating myself, but Bill Clinton was president. And in my psychology 101 class, I was the only person who thought gays should be allowed in the military or that women should have a right to an abortion. Or it was very kind of the odd one out. And, you know, when we did our, I don't know, speeches, got death threats and all kinds of backlash from the baseball team guys. And, you know, it is scary. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's scary. And I just don't want anyone 
to kind of have to take abuse that they don't have to take. And unfortunately, with the legislation going the way it is, I mean, here I'm in Iowa, they're trying to push through a bill to overturn gay marriage. There's just been an avalanche of anti-LGBT legislation's coming down. It's the Florida of the North now in Iowa here. So just know your surroundings of what you can and can't do would be my my thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was also really um, glad to sort of get some of Grace's particular suggestions on it, both as a trans woman and also as a university professor. She's in some ways, you know, really well situated to think about this. And so I think one of the things that she impressed upon me that that struck me as really useful was that, um, you know, research papers should have any propositions or proposed policies at the end, not at the beginning. Um, Otherwise, they're not conducting research, but writing propaganda, which would be true of any position, whether it was in favor or or not um, of trans participation in, in sports. So Grace was encouraging not to be threatened by the existence of this opinion, but to recommend oppositional scholarly research and not YouTube so that you can encourage the student to engage seriously with ideas and that your position is is um, one of responsibility to encourage students to think broadly and unrestrainedly. But that being said, if the student is just doing like ideological um, self-indoctrination with the teacher's approval, the cure is more and better research. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate this next part, which she said, which I wrote down, which is we live in a moment where the very modes of research are profoundly changing. When your wacky aunt or uncle says vaccines cause cancer, they will often say, do the research and send a few confusing looking links about receptor sites. And the average person may not have the tools to deal with this adequately. So the imp- important questions here for the student and, and the letter writer to consider are, what are the questions of fact and what are the questions of policy? Um, and and when is one upstream of the other? And and is there more uh, that you can encourage this letter writer to uh, learn about research, about supporting ideas, about incorporating um, oppositional research into your own work and, and guiding her away from YouTube uh, without, you, you don't have to pretend that you agree with her. I, I don't think that anyone would require you to do that. But I, I think that those would all be ways that you could be useful to this student in, in a way that would be deeply meaningful and would also be consistent with your um, your responsibilities in, in your job. But yes, you can also certainly, I think, say, you know, that you disagree, that you do not share these ideas and that you don't have to out yourself in order to do so either. It, it kind of seems to fit within the broader culture wars that somehow we always seem to be losing. And just this concept of the internet was supposed to make it Al Gore intended so that if people knew about climate change, then they'd do something. And then 20 years in, it went the other way. And we're just flooded with so much misinformation. There was some tweet I saw a bit ago, and it was a gay activist talking about the number of minors who had surgery related to uh, being trans. And Mm -hmm. it was just very, very small. And then there were, it was either 20 or 30,000 underage girls who had had breast augmentation surgery that their parents signed off on. And so there's just this kind of mismatch of all these bans on transgender students, athletes, are, are they're, they're based on just total straw man. 
there's nothing there. In Iowa, the one that they passed, they couldn't find a single trans athlete in the state that the bill was based upon. And so Moms for Liberty and all these hate groups are just pouring in and they don't have kids in these school systems, but they're drafting these bills. And so there's just so much kind of misinformation and really hateful rhetoric behind all of it that makes no sense and isn't consistent with medicine or public health or anything else really other than kind of hateful ideology. Yeah. And I think really the kind of core idea here that is, here's the opportunity for the letter writer to be useful and hopefully offer a useful intervention. If any student says, I'm interested in this particular topic because of YouTube videos, and now I want to write a college research paper, you get to guide them away from YouTube videos and say, here is what scholarly research looks like. Here is what like a practice of citation looks like. Here's what like, uh, you know, scholarly argumentation looks like. Um, and, and you can actually teach. Um, you can actually guide them in the direction of thoughtfulness, learning, and, and, and reason. Obviously, I would hope that that would at the very least lead her away from some of this like radicalization. But even if it doesn't, even if you do not at this time like persuade her to change her mind, you will have at least have done a good thing in saying, here is the difference between scholarly research and a YouTube video. And now she will know that. So, you know, in terms of like keeping your expectations low, but also allowing yourself to be honest and speak the truth with clarity, I think that would be a really good outcome if you were able to, you know, effectively by the end of this, that none of her citations for this paper included YouTube. Uh, that would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. So with that, if you don't mind, uh, I've got a quick sort of like follow-up question from a listener. It's not quite an update because it's from someone who was curious about another person's letter, but I, I thought I would read it towards the end of today's show since it's sort of brief and, and um, might be a nice thing to close on. So the subject is fed up with fixing. I really appreciated your response to the letter writer who questioned their daughter's girlfriend's motivations in the episode, is she really going out with her? I'm a non-binary person in my mid-20s, and I really enjoy spending time with my mom most of the time, but I feel frustrated when my mom gives me advice I didn't ask for or points out occasional acne or frizz in my hair. For a few years now, I've been shutting my mom down when she makes an unwanted comment about my appearance or questions my plans for the future by saying, I don't want to have a conversation about this or just changing the subject. These comments still come, though less directly. For example, instead of just saying she thinks my hair looks bad, my mom will look pointedly at my hair and then say, I won't ask if you're getting a haircut soon. My therapist has suggested that I could try sharing how these comments make me feel instead of just shutting my mom down. In the past, when I've tried to do that, my mom has replied that since she would want me to tell her if I think she looks bad, she wants to do the same for me. So I think she just doesn't get it. Do you have any suggestions on what I could say to her? For what it's worth, she used to really not get why I wanted to use a different name or new pronouns, but now she does and corrects others when they get it wrong, which I greatly appreciate. This gives me some hope that she can change. I really felt this, like that kind of tension of sometimes my mom is great and sometimes my mom is so committed to like low grade hassling me that I want to scream. And uh, that sort of balance of good mom, bad mom. Mm-hmm. Do you have any kind of general thoughts just about like unwanted maternal comments about uh, personal grooming or? Uh... Yeah, well, I don't speak to my mother anymore, so <laughs> it makes that easy. Um, yeah. So, um, 
my stepfather-in-law, he has a line, I don't know if we're allowed to curse, unsolicited advice, fuck that. Like, we just, no one wants it. So if you wanted someone's opinion, you would ask. And that kind of narrative of this is your mother and she's going to lick her finger and wipe your face or like, no, you're not a child, you're an adult and it's your body and you get to present however you choose. And it sounds like this person has a nice sense of here's ways that my mother's gotten it and gotten on board and here's ways that we're still struggling and is doing a great job at kind of limiting the conversations that are not useful. And I think as they become more centered in who they are, like the criticisms or snide or whatever that the comments are, are water on a duck's back. Like it's, it's going to not hold the weight um, that it maybe once did. And um, yeah, I mean, you, you're often saying that, you know, if a parent keeps that up, it's just a way of saying that their kid's not going to want to spend time with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's valid feedback of, you know, if I'm going to be with you, this is what I need from you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is sort of a great example to just refer back to your earlier conversation with your mother where she had just come out and said, you know, I would want someone to do this for me. And I I could always advise you to do the sort of petty thing, which is start pointing out every time you don't like something about her appearance. But I don't actually think that would make you feel any better. And I think it would definitely make your relationship with your mother worse. So I don't advise you to, you know, constantly tell her that you think she looks bad. Um, But uh, to just refer back to it and to say, I appreciate that that's what you want. You and I want different things. The golden rule doesn't really apply here because the way we want to be treated by others does not line up. What I want from you is not to point out if you think I'm breaking out, is not to point out if you think my hair could look different. Um, I, I would like you to to not criticize my appearance, even if you think it's really important or doesn't matter or I shouldn't be bothered by it. I am bothered by it. I don't like it and I want you to stop doing it. I, I think making like a clear request as opposed to just like, I don't want to talk about this, which might have worked on different moms, but hasn't worked on your mom. So it's time to try something new. And I think to just really stress that. And if she says something like, I'm not going to ask you if you're going to get a haircut, you know, really like lovingly, but firmly just say like, walk me through why you would say that. What's different about saying this versus saying, I think you should get a haircut. What's going on inside you when you see me that you feel unable to keep it to yourself? Because I don't see you do this with your friends or your peers or your colleagues where you you can't keep from criticizing their hair. So I know you you can exhibit restraint on this front when you want to. What is it about this that makes it like not add up for you? And, you know, you can let her flail a little bit. You don't have to solve that one for her. But I, I think just to really drive it home, like the problem is that she keeps doing this, not that you're not chill enough. And, and as long as you kind of make that clear, I, I think odds are eventually she will get it or else you're just going to have to keep wrapping her on the wrist. Um, But wrap her on the wrist a little harder than just, I don't want to have a conversation about this. Like make it sting a little bit. And sorry, I feel like I'm talking about your mom like she's a dog that you need to like uh, house train. But you know, nothing wrong with house training your mother once in a while. Behavior is learned. Like she's doing that because she can get away with it. She did that to somebody else. They wouldn't tolerate it. So No, and just that sense of like proprietary ownership moms sometimes feel about their kids' personal appearance where it's just like, you know, I I carried you around inside of my body. I spent the first years of your life, you know, cleaning the snot out of your nose. Why should there be any barriers between me and the way that you look? I, I, you know, 
who are we kidding here? Like, you think you're better than me? Like, you ate out of my body for the first, you know, year of your life, which I can both really respect and appreciate. Like, that's a lot. But also, if you want to have a warm, mutually affectionate, free relationship with your kid as an adult, you really do have to let go of a lot of that proprietary sense of, I get to treat your body as an extension of my body, which means sort of fussing at it in the mirror or picking at it or like saying, oh, I don't like that wrinkle right there. Or like, that doesn't look good. Let me change that. Like that, of course, drives people away and, and is just not going to bring you closer to your adult child. So good luck. It sounds like, you know, she she knows how to learn on other fronts and she'll learn on this one. And let this just be a reminder to all of us that people don't love it when you constantly criticize their appearance. I don't know why sometimes we forget and think, oh, I bet my kid's going to love this. I bet my kid's going to want to hang out all the time if I'm constantly criticizing their skin. Mm. You get more kids with honey than vinegar, I guess. Mm. Ida, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I hope that you have a fabulous rest of your afternoon and that no one says anything to you about your hair unless it's a beautiful compliment. Well, thank you, Danny. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. But I think if for days on end you're hearing someone pounding the windows and screaming, let go of me and let me out, it's time to knock on a door. You know, just knock on a door. And then based on what you hear and see, maybe you're going to get to talk to someone and get an explanation that... While it might not make these sounds feel amazing, um, at least kind of settles your fears or you might not. And then there's a sort of question of, is there like a non-emergency line in the city that I feel comfortable calling that's not just going to like call eight cops to show up and other like kind of more granular questions that you will be better situated to answer a letter writer than, than we are only having sort of a bare minimum of information. But I, I do think this is at the level of like, knock on the door and, and, and just say hi, introduce yourself, let it be known that you're aware, because I think that's going to get you better information that will inform your next decisions. I just don't think there's any way around this. And I just acknowledge it will be uncomfortable. If I were in your position, I would feel uncomfortable. I would feel like, man, I don't really want to do this. And so I would just have to like pick a friend and be like, hey, will you come with me and like help me see what's up? To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.